Like, I don't think that 14-year-olds have any idea, really, of who she is because I think that she's faded from meaningful relevance in this country. And people can come for me about that, but, mm. like, mm. as much as that might be not a nice thing to point out, I also think it's factually true. I have been approached by two political parties now oh. to join them as an MP Whoa. based purely on my following Boom. Um, and what I've been talking about. Like, think about how many disasters the ANC has presided over, how much decay, how much corruption, how much awfulness. That is not contestable. It is just the facts have been established and that's exactly what happened. And not a single other political party has been able to mount a credible challenge. Spread the fire. Spread the fire. Spread the fire. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm really excited to be joined by YouTuber, broadcaster, and digital philosopher. <laughs> Beanie wearer. Uh, Dan Corder, welcome to SMWX. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, the pleasure is ours. And uh, wow, you have this year begun a meteoric YouTube rise. Um, of course, you've been working in the media for a long time, and I just thought it would be really interesting to put you on the other side of, of the microphone and, and hear some of your, your thoughts. So thank you so much for being here. No, it's a treat. I really, really appreciate it. I yeah. can't wait uh, to have no control over what I'm about to say. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can just bring out the file. That I <laughs> so you're a trick result. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let's talk about maths. Um, I actually have this maths question, if you could just do it live. <laughs> Um, yeah, like, I guess let me start where where a lot of people on YouTube have seen you recently, which is which is uh, your first truly massive viral video, which was on random manipulation. Talk us through the the feeling of when you get like that first YouTube. I know you're on TikTok and other platforms, but YouTube is its own world. That video and how it went viral and and how you felt in that moment. So it's funny, I have been working on radio since I was 21 years old. And so I'm incredibly used to the feeling of not seeing an audience, sure. but kind of abstractly knowing that it's there. Mm. But something that's happened on TikTok this year for me, and also um, more recently on YouTube, is seeing the numbers go up. It's, yeah. it's a very different thing to radio where like every six months you get a diary and the diary hasn't actually asked enough people to be statistically reliable mm. and somehow it impacts your job security and whether mm. you're gonna get a contract. Uh, and But then in the last six months to a year, I've had all of these different viral moments. But what was fundamentally different about RAND manipulation mm. is that I started seeing different political parties cutting selects of choice from my video. Oh, we need to talk about that. And, and using them to like yeah. pu push their points of view. And it happened <laughs> once before because I did a comprehensive history of the Springboks as, an, uh, as, a, mm. uh, as a symbol of white supremacy. And mm. then suddenly mm. you're the EFF was chuffed. <laughs> like I was, there were videos of, but only yeah. specific cuts. Oh, yeah. Not yeah. necessarily taking anything out of context, but certainly not showing the entire proposition that I put forward. Yeah. And with RAM manipulation, that was pretty extraordinary across mm. all social media platforms, across the WhatsApp line at 5FM where I'm lucky enough to work. Mm. Uh, people wanting to bring it up, wanting me to talk about it. Yeah. And that was really completely different to anything that I had properly encountered before. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned the audience because even though you see the numbers going up, YouTube can also feel quite solitary and you kind of see these abstract numbers. But I don't know if you've also started maybe after that video meeting people who are like, hey, I saw that video. And that's been really um, interesting for me uh, this year to start feeling like you actually get to connect with the audience. I, I did a lot of videos during COVID, so I was like literally in my in my house filming videos and I knew there were abstract people watching. Sure. But then it's also quite interesting to like connect with people and realize that the reach of digital media right now in this moment is totally different to where it was five years or 10 years ago. It's absurd. And I mean, I can extend that um, to tell you the massive difference between uh, hosting one of the most iconic and well-listened-to radio shows in the South best, Africa. The best ever. Well, I, I personally think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fact that radio, although it is still listened to with an extraordinary fervor by 97% of South Africans, mm. uh, and it is, is in no way dying, no data suggests that it is, Yeah. Uh, because radio uh, presenters are no longer the only celebrities 
in South Africa because they were before mm. the digital easy access social media age because radio mm. presenters are now... Um, Radio presenters used to transcend, their celebrity used to transcend their own radio audience yeah. and they were just famous, universally famous. Sure. But they don't do that anymore. And because it's not a scene medium, uh, I have often felt like um, when I'm walking around in the world hosting 5FM's breakfast show is like a massive secret. Mm. Because if mm. I meet 5FM listeners, it's like, whoa. But if you're that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But since the TikTok virality and the YouTube virality, like mm. I'm, I'm like, not only recognized but approached all the time mm. and mm. it's a very different feeling of fortunately i can just take off the beanies and no one knows who i am ah damn it's I like a hundred percent anonymity really should have started the beanie thing <laughs> oh yeah. face mask or yeah I, I should have yeah yeah from now on i shall wear beanies <laughs> it's good it's good yeah no that's that's really interesting and and i guess for you maybe the difference would be that people yeah like you, you're now on a medium where people are seeing your face they're seeing the emotion and not just the voice. And I suppose that must be different to just the, the voice. Absolutely. And it's also the fact that this project is my project just for me. So nobody is silencing or gagging me anywhere. But when you work for another company, you have their commercial interests in mind. And so you think about the kind of content that you can and cannot put out, should or should not do or say. And also uh, radio is an effective medium in one specific way, but not all. And so that's how I would say that the content is often very different. No, no, that's that's absolutely true. There's a certain freedom that comes with being able to create your own content that is just mind-boggling in, in this era where you can literally take an idea execute it in one day and get it out there are dangers as well with that because like there's just no gap between your thought and and it being mediated to others but there's there's an incredible uh intensity and immediacy of of what you can do yeah i think you're absolutely right um I think that you have to obviously think extraordinarily carefully when you put anything on the internet because it is forever. Mm. Uh, but um, a massive part of my coming of age through all of the different kind of eras and mediated moments that I've lived through since I went to university as an 18-year-old mm. is I've come to learn that whenever you put something out, and this is not an easy thing. It's easy for me to say because I've done so much live performance but it's not easy for people who haven't done that. And so I empathize mm. with that. But like mm. having done this much live performance, I've managed to get to a point where I go, so long as I feel certain about what I am saying as I say it, mm. the audience response can be what it can be. And unless the audience response points out something in what I've said or done where I go, oh my God, I really screwed that up. Mm. I'm actually quite fortified in whatever I put out. So it's the creation moment is anxiety inducing, but not mm. the audience response. Mm. Except for random manipulation, when I thought, dear God, if one economist calls me and says, you idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's why before I put out that video, I called two economist PhD friends of mine. Nice. And I was like, I want you to read the script and tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and then uh, people come for you, as you say, different political parties uh, respond in different ways. Yay, Helen Zilla, even. even <laughs> Welcome uh, to the club. Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> I must say that was a completely different stock. Helen Zilla coming from me and my father uh, yeah. on Twitter. But it was fun. Mm. And so in some level, I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, mm. There's something quite satisfying about being an, an enemy of the uh, conservative. Workers Pocus is the devil brigade. Yeah, it's quite fun. <laughs> Workers Pocus is the devil. Yo, they love that phrase. The invention of wokeness. We could do a whole podcast about how that has become a scarecrow yeah. that people have used to just completely um, take out of context any legitimate conversation about like historical injustice. Like, firstly, like no one even really uses the word woke to like describe themselves seriously. Mm -hmm. It's only a term of of attack for this like scarecrow of anti wokeness or or what. I heard one DA politician call the woke karate. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty amusing. Yeah, yeah. But how how did it feel to be to be attacked publicly by by Helen Zilla like that? Um, did did it hurt? Because sometimes, um, obviously, you know, we have our our personas on social media, and and one wants to respond publicly. But there's a certain lack of control one has about where this stuff goes and how it gets received. Um, how are you How are you handling that? So the thing about the, the Helen Zilla moment is that um, she was going on a diatribe about uh, the evils of progressive thought, basically. Mm. 
uh, and then one of her followers, and I actually thought this was hilarious, but posted a video that I'd done about uh, white's economic empowerment during apartheid mm. and said, is this the new Belle Pottinger? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's objectively, wow. the delusion is hilarious. <laughs> like Dan caught a Belle Pottinger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I haven't received my invoice yet. Uh, <laughs> Belle Pottinger, please, yeah, faster, exactly. because I exactly. do not have enough money. Well, I, I don't know if you know, but you're now on uh, an EFF PR channel. So, really? So welcome, yeah. Yes. Also an ANC PR channel sometimes, a Rise Mzansi really? PR channel. I didn't know that. That's and awesome. We've also been a DA PR channel as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she responded to that. Um, and I think that what I took such fundamental issue with was somebody with an immense amount of power, no matter how many hundreds of thousands of her Twitter followers are bots, um, and, and there are many, uh, but someone with that level of power resorting to like a real character assassination where mm. there was no interest in engaging with a level of argument or intellect or public thing. Yeah. Yeah. What she instead decided to do was try and besmirch me and actually my father's reputation mm. through saying Dan Corder is the son of and then insult. But the insult was mm. to like denigrate me was one of the professors who presided over the collapse or the destruction of UCT. Yeah. And I took immense issue with that because, mm. and I mean, people have like used personal attacks to try and delegitimate me before, but like pulling in a member of my family was something that I found really objectionable. Yeah. Um, and then fortunately I got the Twitter clap back. Absolutely right. Um, because yeah. it went viral. It's a lot of art. people came to defend my dad, but also just, mm. I think put her in her place. And so, the other thing is, I don't think I was particularly rude. Like, I did say mm. that um, she spends her time baiting bigots to try and remain relevant when kids who are in grade eight this year have no idea who she is. Um, but, like, that's just, like, I'm sorry, that's not rude. Like, I don't think that 14-year-olds have any idea, really, of who she is because I think that she's faded from meaningful relevance in this country. And people can come for me about that, but, mm. like... Mm. As much as that might be not a nice thing to point out, I also think it's factually true. So, I mean, I have no deep worries about fighting with anybody, mm. to be honest. Mm. Because the only other thing I'll say about that is the danger of social media is if something goes unchallenged, long enough later it will become narrative. Because mm. it will become a normal thing that is said online and then the way that social media works is you go online, you see that a certain thing repeated enough time mm. without challenge and retweets on it and likes on it or sort of whatever. And then it becomes law. Mm. And I wasn't willing to accept that my father had contributed to the destruction of UCT yeah. or that my father reflected badly on me or I reflected badly on mm. him. So it was a necessary thing for me to do. Sure, that cuts deep because, wow, like attacks through parents, uh, you know, that's that's something that um, I live I live with on a daily basis as well. And I guess I've I've taken the opposite approach, but you're... You're, you're encouraging me to take a different approach because I tend to like ignore and just assume that people will figure out the truth. I see. Um, but I think there's a lot to what you say about the fact that sometimes people take when you get attacked personally or through your family, wh when people make those attacks and you stay silent, they think you're actually agreeing with it or trying to, to hide the thing that they're right. accusing you of. Right. Yeah, so I think there is an interesting conversation to ha to be had about like how one responds to to trolling, whether from massive accounts or or small ones, and it's also just time investment though. It's like, am I really going to invest my time in like setting the record straight whenever yeah. it gets? You, yeah, you got to pick a moment, and then you got to make sure you're enjoying yourself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got to you yeah. got to be having a good time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you seem to be enjoying your yourself there. I was interested to to learn of your your deeper background um, in academia and and debating. Um, what uh, what did you learn from your your experience in debating, which which took you into the academic realm, and and how do you look back on the experience of competitive debating? I I owe like my entire career to debating. Uh, when I was in high school, I was bullied and socially dysfunctional and. Um, had a debilitating stutter in uh, public performance moments. Huh. And so even when I was doing debating, I don't know if you did high school debating, but in high school de debating, you have yeah. eight minutes to talk. Yeah, And I had to teach myself how to speak at like 60 words or more a minute 
because the rest of the time I would stutter for sometimes up to 30 seconds at a time and I would lose time speaking going like uh, 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 mm. just under pressure. Mm. Mm. So I learned how to... Um, I learned how to manage and process the anxiety of live performance, which is now my whole life, um, through doing debating in high school. And then I wasn't very good, but I was generally inquisitive about the world and I found it fun mm. to express thoughts that I had about the world through debating. And then um, at the very end of high school, I suddenly got very good very randomly. And then into university, I had a pretty successful career and was able mm -hmm. to travel the world and do things at different debating world championships and that. Um, which I'm incredibly blessed. But yeah, I think um, a crucial part of, of my skill set now is ability to rapidly cut through noise on an issue and find the core thread that is yeah. most defining and important yeah. and retell it very fast mm. with very good word efficiency. And I have debating to thank for that. Mm. And again, with the anxiety of public performance i never would have been able to do radio with without working through that so mm. yeah debating was immensely instrumental to my development i was like when i went through your history i was like of course he was a debater <laughs> <laughs> one of those debater types it, it also speaks to doing a video on youtube about a cutting edge current affairs issue or some economic question looks really easy it's like oh he just press play in his bedroom with his beanies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's actually a lot of work that goes into, number one, understanding an issue, dissecting it, and then, because that's a lot of what academics do, and that's an important role of academics, but then dissecting it for public consumption yes. and putting it through a filter of public consumption where it's also kind of a teaching process. Um, and I think a lot of people underestimate the work and the multiple parts of your brain that have to be used to to do that sure no you're absolutely right and um whenever because earlier on in my career people were like ah oh, you're talking too highfalutin for the radio and i mm. thought to myself like mm. like the process of speaking to a public is not about dumbing down what you're saying it's about finding accessible language to express just as complex an idea sure uh, yeah, nobody nobody deserves to be talked to as though they're stupid or five years old, mm. and it does them a disservice and speaks to a level of arrogance mm. um, about oneself if one does that. It's just about figuring out how to explain complex ideas in terms that are universal to everybody. Absolutely, and I suppose in that journey towards where you are now, and of course your your journey will continue into the future, and I suspect you're your channels are going to be massive. Like they're already big, but they're going to be massive in a year and three years and five years. Um, take us back into your journey of learning about broadcasting and, and how that unfolds, especially at UCT. And particularly a, a role at UCT Radio where things are popping off at UCT during the Roads Must Fall era. And I learned to my, to my shock as we were talking before that you were actually right there doing broadcasting then. I actually listened to your shows, but I didn't know that you were the, see, the person see. on the radio. Well, I was much worse then. So. Well, <laughs> it's very, I, I cannot believe I ever got no, hired no, by a real company. No beanie. That's why it's <laughs> like, the it's the beanie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what was that like? Like learning, learning the craft on UCT radio, but also being there at that pivotal moment in UCT's history during Roads Must Fall and speaking to so many of the role players. Yeah, so I uh, would characterize my career as a series of moments of enormous good fortune, like luck. And then my brother will say, but but Dan, people get moments of luck. It's how one capitalizes on them. And I can recognize that mm -hmm. I got lucky, but also there were moments where things fell my way. Um, so I had no interest in broadcasting nor radio. I was just staggeringly bored and unfulfilled. And that's not a criticism of the university system. I love universities. I just didn't know what I was doing with my degree, I didn't know what I wanted to study. And then on one of those um, campus society sign-up days, someone yeah. just said, do you want to sign up to the radio station? I thought, literally, why not? And then the next day, in my student account, a thousand rand was missing because that was the sign-up fee. Oh, like, wow. For a club and society, a thousand rand. Well, then I'd better go to this stupid thing because like that's so much money yeah um and then when i got to uct radio i was incredibly fortunate because i never had to do a graveyard shift or anything like that because the breakfast show needed a producer and in the training they kind of identified that this kid has just got like 
endless hunger for interesting stories and endless curiosity. So mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. created lots of content. Like I had these long prep sheets of all these oddities and things that happen in the world and facts and stuff, because that's just um, how I was raised to be. Mm. Um, and then a few months in, I was put on air a lot. And then a few months after that, uh, we needed to have a reshuffle because the afternoon drive host needed to go and do some studies. And so I was made the breakfast host and the breakfast host moved to drive because it fit. Because, you know, at Campus Radio, you know this. I'm sorry, you don't exist to the viewer, but you know this. Um, but you know just that like... Talking to imaginary friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's about, it's so often just about your schedule. It's yeah. about your study schedule. It's yeah. not about who's the best or whatever. It's how to build a lineup. Uh, yeah. And so I hosted the breakfast show. And the end of that year, I got quite a bad illness, which meant that I had to stop doing breakfast radio because it was too taxing on my body. Mm. And in the beginning of 2015, I uh, went to management and I just said, these old fogies who believe that young people don't want to do talk radio are wrong. It's just the talk radio is run by 40-somethings who don't make content for young people. And then they blame young people for not listening to their whining about how things were better in the 90s. Like, mm. there needs to be a change of understanding of that. Can I start a talk radio show? And so we started a talk radio show, Contraband, and it immediately felt like what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And we were having, mm -hmm. that was the year when um, uh, Lean In was a thing and Sheryl Sandberg, wow. and I had law yeah. school feminists debating against art school feminists mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. on the show. There was a scandal about Israel, Palestine, and about Jewish and Muslim students. It was all happening. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so funny. I always remember a couple of the people who ended up being the iconic Rhodes Must Fallists were on my show a month before it happened. So interesting. And we were talking about the formation of South Africa and I looked at them because I'd seen the discussion starting to percolate on Twitter, a discussion yeah. that is now very popular across South Africa. Mm. Did Mandela sell out the revolution during mm. Codessa? Mm. And they looked at me like they had never considered that before. And now we've all thought about that to sure. death for the last 10 years. Sure, sure. Um, and then we had this kind of soft conversation because I hadn't thought about it. And a month later, yeah. roads must fall, screw Mandela. Like, <laughs> everything <laughs> sucks still. Um, and then I had this extraordinary moment during roads must fall where mm. mainstream media wasn't trusted by the yeah. fallists who were often yeah. writing for an older, wealthier, more established, generally white middle-class readership. And mm. so their words were getting taken out of context. And so when Tomani Makole threw the shit on the statue, he came and spoke to me and that was the podcast people heard. Yeah. And so I was just incredibly lucky uh, to be in that moment. And then a succession of extremely significant interviews with what happened during Rhodes Must Fall happened hmm. on my show. And that was it. It's a really important historical archive. Uh, one should go, I take it they're still available. They are. Actually yeah. Crazy. One should go back to that now. And like, what do you remember about that interview with, We've actually just um, interviewed Max Price. I'm not sure whether that interview comes out before or after this one, but we've had a really interesting conversation about that time mm -hmm. at UCT, about that time in the country, because mm -hmm. it's it's had such a lasting impact on a certain generation of young South African who who witnessed and, and went through that period and, and had so many views changed and, and evolved. But you literally interviewed Kumani Matwele the moment after the excrement hit the spinning wheel yeah so um what i found really interesting about that moment is that in the four hours between Omani throwing the shit and then me i don't know if we can just swear on the show the excrement um <laughs> no. and uh and him speaking to me yeah. already there were stories and thing pieces and hit mm. attacks and narratives mm. in his mm. favor and against him yeah and so what I did in that interview and what I did throughout the Rose Must Fall period is I, and I said to him before, I said, I'm not going to attack you with questions. Yeah. This is your moment to tell the story of what happened exactly as you saw it happen and why you did it as a record, because then after that will be the back and forth discourse. Mm. And so I found it really interesting because I think he knew already what a huge moment he had created. Mm. I think there was already enough evidence. Yeah. There was a crackle in the air about the visceral and immediate response from black students and mm. from the wider public about it. Mm. And so I think that what he in that interview was going through was grappling with what, like the effect of what he'd just done, hmm. I think, and maybe starting to speculate about what, what would follow before yeah. any one of us knew exactly what would happen. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the art of the interview. Um, again, it's something that looks really easy it's like oh you're just talking to people but there's there's a certain 
art of, of an interview, but there are also different kinds of interviews. There's a hard-hitting journalistic accountability interview. There's a sit-back conversational interview. What, what have you learned about interviewing, having gone through the UCT radio experience, now doing your own interviews with public figures that you maybe think people don't understand or appreciate about that craft? So uh, the best interviews, not just from an entertainment perspective, from an a but from an actually learning something perspective, are interviews which start with the interviewer and the interviewee on the same side. So I'm not saying pretend you like someone. I'm not saying pretend that uh, uh, dupe them or anything. Mm. But you need to come to an interview from a place of softness because the interviewee is putting themselves in a vulnerable moment or is expecting you to come for them. Sure. And in that moment, if you start hard and brutal, unless you're literally on the BBC's hard talk mm. where that's the whole show and everyone knows that that is the point, mm. um, unless you're on that, you have to create a rapport from which fruitful conversations can happen, yeah. even if you disagree with them. A great example is when Sakina Kamwendo interviewed Brian Molefe about, about ESCOM and the coal. And Sakina is world-class at four to six minutes yeah. of sweet, finding out, figuring out, and then, mm. but hold on. And there's a gear shift that you can see and feel, and uh, that creates for excellent interviews because you've got a groundwork from which to interview. Sure. And then when it comes to entertainment interviews that are seeking fact because i'm not a journalist as much as it, people mm. sometimes describe me as mm. i mean i'm a, I'm, a, I'm from an entertainment background and so i'm not necessarily looking for an entertaining interview but i recognize that for people to watch something and for your material to have impact it has to be entertaining it has sure. to be worth somebody's time so sure. from that stream there are two dominant um, people who shaped this era. One of them is uh, Oprah Winfrey and the other one is Howard Stern. Mm. And whatever you think of either of them, they are the two most iconic interviewers in American and therefore Western pop cultural history. They're the two most influential. So Oprah Winfrey comes um, for her interviewer with serious empathy. So she is like, I, I want to know how you feel, and that must have been so hard, mm. but it is a, an interviewee-centric empathy. Yeah. Howard Stern comes from a self-centered, and I'm not criticizing him, but a self-centered sure. empathy. So mm. if he's trying to get you to tell a story about a particular thing, he'll root it in, I've had a similar experience to that. So mm. those are both really good strategies for mm. getting somebody comfortable so that they can then perform and you can perform with them whether you want to catch them out or not. Sure. Um, but the, so, so that's what I've thought a lot about in my career. Mm. But I think what I do and what I prioritize the most is actually something that somebody commented on on my video last week where they said um, of Chris Pappas, mm. Dan mm. is trying to lead you towards honesty. Uh, which is nothing about Chris Pappas and whether or not he was telling the truth yeah. on whatever he was talking about. But I think that that's, that is what I pride myself on is like, sometimes people don't want to be honest in an interview. And then you have a, you have a duty as an interviewer mm. to guide them towards honesty. And if they refuse to be honest, at least the way that you handle them will show that they've chosen not to do that. Sure. But ultimately, interviews are about getting people to express their true selves because if they choose to be on an interview, they've demanded the spotlight already. Mm. They've demanded your attention. Now you at least owe them honesty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as well, like how the interview is shifting over time with the advent of new digital channels and, and working in different media as you do, you know, on traditional radio on the one hand and then like youtube on the other and of course tiktok are there interviews on tiktok there really? are <laughs> oh, <laughs> tiktok live yeah. yeah um and what's what's hard in this era i feel is actually to go back to what you said at the start with the people taking moments out of context and then creating narratives out of those moments and Assuming that you have some kind of nefarious agenda mm -hmm. based on a clip of an interview when there's actually a deeper story and context to how you got to that moment in the clip. Mm -hmm. um, just, to, just to share a, a story like on that, um, obviously one of the biggest interviews that, that I've ever had to do was with former President Zuma, for which many people have never forgiven me. Okay. Um, and... I was building up to a question, like for about 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because like 
I had criticized him like, you can't believe. Yeah, your PhD. I, I, PhD, I'd written a song about it. Was, um, at the time, in fact, my father had also done a lot of cases against him. Ha ha, ironic. Um, so like, I knew that a lot of that interview, just the, the groundwork had to be building that rapport so that I could build to that question. I see. And then when I asked the question, his legal team was like, you can't ask that question. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so that question what wasn't- What was the question? Ah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes back to how like interviews uh -huh. versus conversations are like, I liked the, the idea of, of trying to build an interview into a conversation eventually. Totally. So funny you should ask that. <laughs> um, the question was, um, how did he get hold of the spy tapes? I see. And did he get them from Pravin Gordhan? Mm, okay. I'm which would have been a bombshell of yeah. a... So I was like, now, groundwork was set. He was comfortable. Okay. And I was like, now, I've always wondered, mm. how did you get the spy tapes? And where did they come from? And he was like, it's funny you should ask that because yeah. actually, legal team, no. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. He was willing to answer. He was, he was about, I was like, everything is built up. He's going to answer. There's going to be this bombshell moment wow. in South African politics. And then it was cut. Okay. So, and, and like, nobody knows that that was the whole strategy and plan. So is that the bombshell of this interview that I got you to tell Pretty me much, story? Pretty much, basically. Yeah, well done. Yeah. SMWX will now be yeah. taken over by Dan Corda. <laughs> this has all been a ruse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a really yeah. interesting story. Yeah. Yeah, what yeah. is the dynamics of... Was You're it just now just... Okay, on one more question. <laughs> no, no. no, I'm yeah, interested. No, absolutely, by all means. Two yeah, to four yeah. lawyers let's, let's standing talk. just off yeah. camera waiting. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, back to you. Mm -hmm. I, I love that I learned that. No, I really genuinely love that I learned that. Yeah, like part, part of interviewing... Um, is knowing what the audience sees in a room, knowing what you can see in a room. Hello, Oradile. <laughs> the, the cult figure of SMWX comments. Um, and, and knowing that there's often a dissonance between those two things. Sure. And then having to negotiate in public what you could see and what the, or what the audience could only see. Totally. It's even more weird on radio. Oh, yeah. Okay. Where, like, you've only got one audio medium but everybody is interacting with each other in the studio as mm. humans who can fully see each other mm. and all the body language mm. and having mm. to figure out the storytelling of telling the story mm. so like having mm. to describe for example my sport probably is dancing or tabo's in the kitchen right, or right, Mali, right. why did you flinch when tabo said that thing yeah, or whatever yeah. it's a key part of making the performance of the story good mm. is mm. the filling in sure yeah sure thanks for that <laughs> drop, drop a like and a comment for Oradile uh, down below. Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. And, and I, I wonder about the, 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 the worlds you occupy because you're, you're straddling culture and music and that world, which is booming and really interesting. And then you have an understanding of politics and the economy. What if, you know, what, what, what do you think are the intersections between those two worlds? You know, when I think of this constant lament that young people are apathetic. I see so much attention being devoted to how to capture youth imagination in the world of culture. Like so much energy gets put into making it visually interesting and sounding good. And then in politics, you're like, wow, that was just done on word art kind of thing, right? Um, that's one thing that stands out to me, but I wonder what, what you've seen between those two worlds. So I'm incredibly lucky because um, not just 5, uh, 5FM, but many radio stations have never done this before. And 5FM was like, I always say that 20, uh, what was it? 20, during COVID, it was 2020. 2020 was the first year where I could work for 5. Um, and the sure. reason why is because I have always tried to keep with like core values and characteristics of myself, no matter what radio or any kind of performance I do, which is that people need to know that I'm thinking a lot, that I've really got some knowledge and I'm trying to express it mm. and that I'm trying to be funny and entertaining and like interesting, present interesting things, the kind of thing that I want to listen to or watch. And uh, the more that I have moved through my life, 
the more that that has been about South African current affairs, politics, and the rest. Mm. And mm. I was so lucky when I was hired for five. I only started in 2021, but the initial conversations were at the end of 2020. I was so lucky because the man who hired me said, we want you to do exactly that. And I thought, amazing. Yeah. And then, yeah. of course, there were extended conversations about 5FM being a commercial music entertainment entity. Sure. So whatever I did needed to make sense within that. Mm. But fortunately, in the last nearly three years now, um, I've either found the right, the audience or the audience that was there already actually mm. found that they wanted what we as a breakfast show tried to do. Mm. Where we have managed to create a scenario where we talk a lot about politics. Mm. We talk a we were laughing about the sheriff at the ANC's uh, the, the house the other day, yeah. and they were driving away the cars to make sure that they weren't on the stock take. Um, <laughs> the jokes we, write themselves I in, know. in the republic. It's too easy. And yeah. we talked about NHI. We had a massive debate about social grants and all that. Mm. Um, and it just has proven to me again mm. that nothing is boring to South Africans or anybody. What is yeah. boring is how some people talk about things. Mm. Because an excessively boring person could talk about Taylor Swift being time person of the year and even Swifties would not want to Sure, sure. But uh, what we've managed to do is show, and, and, and here's the other thing that mm. I think about a lot because so many people message me saying, thank you. Um, basically, I haven't known how to get into understanding South African current affairs. Mm. I'm sure you get the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, I thought a lot about why that's the case. And it's not because they're not interested People would be so stupid to not be interested in the world's news around them and the people who are making decisions about their house, their street, their job, mm. their school, mm. their neighborhood. Everybody's interested in that. It's just about how you tell stories such that it's accessible, entertaining, and interesting. Um, and so on Five, our project has been, if we want to talk about Fikile Mbulula to people who don't know who he is, mm. Mm. we've got to build the world. We've sure. got to talk about him sure. from first principles. Mm. Talk about mm. him once mm. every three weeks. And then in six months time, yeah. we can do a gag about Fikile Mbalula that everybody will get immediately because mm. we've built the world. That's that's so interesting. That's 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 education. That's what yeah. education is, For right? Sure. It's giving people the hook and the context to make sense of something they didn't understand before. Yeah. And so. It, it's so interesting how the world of culture can become a gateway maybe a more effective gateway than a serious news conversation to talk about those issues. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Fakila Mbalula went viral so many times, like no one will ever forget when somebody criticized him for going to that wrestling match in LA. And his response tweet was, where are you? I'm inside the venue, I can't see you. <laughs> it's just like objectively hilarious. It's an objectively hilarious clapback. So that gives you an opportunity to laugh about that joke, but then talk about, was there a legitimate critique within the person saying, why are you wasting time and money when you're a minister across watching a boxing match? Mm. And from that, you've just got so much space to mm. have a real conversation. So that's mm. what we try to do. Mm. And building out those worlds ahead of this election, I think is going to be fascinating because yes, digital media is, is not, it doesn't have the reach of an, of an SABC or it has a different reach. And I, you and I both appreciate that working in the SABC in different places as well. Um, by the way, the reach of, of the SABC, amazing. Just, just, um, but for the first time, I feel like we're going we're gonna to have a YouTube election as well. We had a Facebook election. We had a Twitter election. Sure. I think 2024 is going to also be a YouTube election. And we therefore have the opportunity to set the context for this election in our small ways in a completely different way for a different audience that maybe hasn't been interested in this before. I think you're exactly right. And along with the YouTube election, I'll include a TikTok election in that. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. There was really... You need to give me tips for TikTok after this, please. I yeah. don't have any tips because I do such a specific thing okay. and I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. I can show you how to do what I do. <laughs> like, that's pretty much what, it. What works, what works for you on, on TikTok particularly? Like, uh, I need to... Under, I'm still in the process of educating myself mm. on the platform. We're going to come back to YouTube election. Okay, cool. but, but yeah, like, what, what's behind your... your Success. Success and ability to say serious things on TikTok. Yeah. At least at the end. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Their jokes at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, yeah. like a lot of people are like, well, TikTok is about, is where you want to go not to hear serious things. Yeah. You know, you want That has yeah. changed now. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That has changed. So TikTok is so interesting because in 2020, COVID was its biggest blessing because we were all stuck inside and then it became the dancers channel. 
uh, or the dancers app for viral dancers. But now TikTok has become exactly what you want from every single piece of digital media because TikTok's algorithm is so superb that you can find your corner of TikTok that is unlike anybody else's. So my TikTok, hilariously, yeah. is just puppets telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> because all my favorite comedians are ventriloquists. Yeah. Right, right. So it's like Chad the Bird and then, ah, oh, what's that What's that purple guy, Randy Feltface? Okay. I find the art of somebody using a puppet to mm. tell jokes and make audiences laugh mm. so bewitching mm. and incredible. And we've obviously got plenty in this country, Chester Missing and the rest. Mm. Mm. But that's my TikTok. So I can't tell you how to yeah. be good at that. Yeah, yeah. But sure. what people um, enjoy about me and also my dear friend Zetu Kola mm. is that we take news articles, we use green screen, we we leap to the bits that we find most impactful and important, yeah. tell a few jokes because we are still young people sure. um, and um, part of a generation who wants to laugh in a country which needs to laugh mm. Um, mm. Uh, while at the same time trying to trying to make a point so it's not just I'm going to read you News 24 now. It's a little more than that. Yeah. yeah. But like, aside from that, I don't have much more advice for you because sometimes I just like feel randomly creative. So like, you remember when the Burner Boy concert was canceled? Yeah. Yeah. I was reading about this story. I was like, cool, I could talk about that. But like, what's what's in it for the viewer if they've already read this article? Yeah. And then I realized that one of the two Americans implicated was called Mr. Wings. And I just okay. thought that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so then for the whole video, I just told the story of what happened with Burn Boy's concert. But every single time I mentioned Mr. Wings, I yeah. mentioned another KFC meal. <laughs> so he was Mr. Dunked Wings, then he was Mr. Streetwise 2. Yeah. And yeah. that was, it was just a, a gag. Wow. And yeah. that's what, yeah. I, and I love doing that the most when you find a simple joke and you just run mm. with it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Well, you did say something that was quite insightful there as well, which was like, you thought what's in it for the viewer. And that's uh, yeah, often sure. like a really difficult question for content creators because they're, they're thinking, how can I do this right? Or how can I get this right? Mm -hmm. When it's like putting yourself in the shoes of the viewer, whether TikTok, YouTube or, or radio yeah, for sure. is, is the first step. Can I say something about YouTube TikTok election? By all means, that's where, that's where we were going. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Because there was something festering in my head. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is the first time in South Africa's history that certain content creators online yeah. have the power to shape the futures of individual politicians. So I don't think an individual mm -hmm. content creator or anyone in South Africa yeah. has the ability to tell someone who to vote for and then there's that. Yeah, sure. But like um, the fact that politicians want to be interviewed by YouTubers now mm -hmm. tells its own story, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like when you look at the views, when you look at the numbers, when you look at say a million views on a TikTok video, yeah. And then business day, no disrespect. I love business day. Please mm. write about me business day. No, absolutely. Has like yeah. a readership of less than a hundred thousand. The title the of this video, Dan Cotter hates business day. <laughs> hates capital letters. Long running beef. <laughs> <laughs> business day doesn't know about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, mm. so, so the fact of the matter is that uh, online creators in South Africa have now got such significant audiences, a handful mm. of online creators, sure, that sure. they can interact with politics and create such viral moments mm. that they will impact people's perceptions in the way that a TV interview can also do and yeah. has done for much longer. Yeah. yeah, And I think that that is like a radical seismic change. Hmm. And so... Yeah, it's just weird. Ever since 2020, people are using YouTube and TikTok like TV. Mm -hmm. And if they're using it like TV, political conversations on those platforms are as impactful as anywhere else. Mm. And now you certainly know this. You can get huge names to come and talk to you on YouTube. Yeah. And it's, it's just because a YouTube video and a clip from a TV show are the same to somebody using the yeah. internet. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in many cases, the numbers are the same, which, which is fascinating to me. Um, apart from like, free-to-air TV, um, you know, the YouTube interviews get as many, if not more, than many DSTV interviews will get, yep, news right. interviews. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating moment, and I wonder what it will mean for 2024, because, and I also wonder whether political parties and political figures in general have figured it out yet, because we're in a unique position to see certain kinds of numbers and yes, people do come, but I still don't get, I feel like they're like coming to, to, to show that they're cool and they, yes. just, and they understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think they know that it's like as powerful a platform. And if, if a politician was like, I'm going to do all the YouTube, the, I'm going to do the YouTube run. Mm. 
that would be an incredibly powerful run now yeah, on, on yeah yeah so it's interesting i don't know whether i think most politicians are not under the age of 35 yeah, and um the and there are millions of people under, under the age of 35 themselves who are not content creators yeah yeah so it's like it's hard to figure it out mm. and politicians have had for as long as rate raiders exist for more than 100 years tv for more than 70 and so like politicians know they need to learn the craft of being really good at that thing yeah but um politicians and political parties have by and large not figured out how to be cool mm. in an era where mass use of social media can create cool for generally young people themselves mm. although there have been extraordinary developments like i mean joe biden six months ago signed somebody who is like 35 years old and she's just a social media genius mm. and she ran a local campaign for a democrat and in the last six months joe biden's twitter has mm. exploded with wit and mm. brilliant memes mm. and it doesn't feel like dad joke try harding <laughs> and i think that more and more political parties in south africa are going to start emulating that model because yeah. it's so obviously important yeah absolutely that should be the title of Joe Biden's autobiography. Dad joke, try hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, behind the scenes of interviews, like, you've now been able to meet various politicians. I see you've spoken to Songe Zozibi. You've spoken to Musi Maimane. Maybe these are some of the politicians who are getting it. Chris Papas. Um, I told the story of, of, the, of the Zuma thing. Any interesting moments that you've had, like, off the camera or things that you've learned about South African politics trying to get interviews? Let's try, let's, let's spill the YouTube tea. Uh, <laughs> um, so I have been approached by two political parties now oh. to join them as an MP Whoa. based purely on my following. Boom. Um, and what I've been talking about, which I obviously <laughs> said no to because that's insane. But you know yourself as someone wow. who's been working in this uh, in this um, arena yeah. for a long time. Yeah. That so many influences are paid off by nefarious yeah. forces who run unpublished mm. um, or like, sorry, unacknowledged influencer campaigns. Absolutely. And they're not just political influences, they're influencers yeah. who, are, who are told, hey, I'll pay you 10K if you make this mm. kind of TikTok mm. video. Absolutely. So that is happening. And by the way, you can get our email address <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the about section of this channel. Yeah. <laughs> But it's been really interesting because there are a couple of political leaders of smaller parties who DM spammed me for interviews for like mm. four months and I didn't respond because yeah. I don't interview everybody. I interview people I find interesting. Sure. And then sure. in both of those cases, there was a moment they were like, would you like to be an MP for us? <laughs> wow, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> One, no. Two, yeah. you're not going to get a seat, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, maybe you will, but you won't. Um, wow, wow, wow. But yeah. It That's is, crazy. Yeah, those, those two times were incredibly weird mm. and then um the other thing that is interesting is that just after each of my interviews when the mics go off every politician mm. i've spoken to so far starts speaking to me as though i'm a mate who's in their political party mm. and saying pretty disparaging things mm. about other mm. people so interesting um just to protect my ability to have future interviews. yeah you don't have to name i won't names, say but who what but, did you learn yeah. but uh one politician uh, this interview hasn't come out yet actually but Ooh. after that interview uh the politician was just laughing about musi mamane and saying mm. that musi was a joke and he's just desperate for a job and wow. he will take any if he gets a seat in parliament he will do anybody's bidding just to have Shock. work oh my word and i thought to myself that's interesting yeah. Yeah. not about musi particularly it's about your attitude as yeah. a fellow politician yeah, exactly. of power towards exactly. musi mamane so i found mm. that really interesting mm. Mm. And then in interviews, there have been a couple of moments when I've just thought to myself, yeah, because at the beginning of every interview, I, well, I mean, approach. So sometimes I ask people and sometimes they approach me. And right, right. The, 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 the thing is always the same. They want a pre-interview or they want a list of questions. And I say, mm. I'm not going to provide you a list of questions and you're not going to get editorial cut power afterwards, mm. but mm. I'm going to approach this interview from the intent to try and understand you. Mm. not catch you up. I just want to know what you really think. Sure. Cut, cutting through the mess, like with Tomani Makhoile yeah. uh, eight years ago. And uh, and then I say, watch my other interviews. You'll see yeah. that that's how I do it. And what that does is it leads to quite extraordinary moments of radical honesty. So, mm. And then when those moments happen, I always think to myself, 
are they going to try and tell me to cut this out? But mm. these politicians say things with their chests and then I think have a level of self-confidence that they'll be fine. Mm. Like mm. the Herman mm. Mashaba interview that I did, a particularly right. viral moment was when he said he would force um, criminals in prison to work does, uh, without pay all day long, no matter like their situations. Mm. If they were in jail beyond 65, they'd continue to work, no sense wow. of pension or whatever. And I realized what he was saying in my head. And then I had to really think, how am I going to ask him this? And mm. he stopped speaking. And I said, that sounds exactly like slavery. And there was a moment where he kind of stopped. And there was, it was the only time in the interview when he went. Mm. And then he said, Dan, do you think we should treat criminals correctly? Which is the classic spin mm, of this sure, topic of sure. like these lowlifes deserve nothing from us. Why do they get a free pass in prison or whatever? Yeah. But I was just kind of amazed that he thought to himself, sure, that does sound like slavery, mm. but this position is the political position that yeah. will win me a lot of votes. And he has more than enough reason to believe because there are more than enough people who do agree with him on that. Sure. But that's a powerful position to hold. And most politicians love massive exposure, even on viral moments where some people are saying you're evil, you're wrong. Mm. So that was a really interesting moment in that interview where I think that he for a second thought that he lost control mm. and then realized that actually what I'd asked him was fine. Huh. It's so fascinating to actually meet people when you interview them, especially people who are in the public eye and politicians that you're so used to seeing via screen. Yes. And sometimes you can't communicate it because other people are watching it via screen or they don't get to see the moments before or afterwards, but you get to appreciate and understand certain aspects of who they are as a person because you're seeing them in three dimensions and you're seeing what they are like as a person. I have this interesting, like, um, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of politicians who one agrees with and then you meet them and you're like, wow, you're not necessarily a nice person. Yeah, like, absolutely. your views are really interesting, but I don't know if, if I like you as a person, you know. And then there are politicians who, like, you completely disagree with, mm -hmm. but you're like, wow, that, 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 that person is actually a a genuine person like mm. or like so i <clears throat> i remember john steenhazen like it's well documented that i've disagreed with him on a lot of issues the da their position on race etc you, you wouldn't know about these kind of criticisms and being criticized by the da dan <laughs> 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 i've been blacklisted yeah. for more interviews hey. by three DA oh well yeah I, um but i just found john steenhazen like a very nice approachable person and I was like, wow, that, that wrong-footed me. Like, um, There's a degree yeah. of charisma that you only capture when you actually meet someone. Yeah. Uh, to use him, Mashaba, again, he's got this extraordinary charisma in mm -hmm. person. And I can understand why he's been such a successful businessman and all the things because of his interpersonal skills are really impressive. Yeah. Um, and he also does this thing when you're asking him a question where he looks at you without blinking hmm. with a very serious face oh my word and it's like it's not it wasn't destabilizing for me but i thought to myself there are probably a lot of people who wanted to screw with this guy and then didn't <laughs> i don't yeah. know where the camera is he looks at you yeah. like this when you're asking him a question <laughs> for as long as you're talking <laughs> and i thought to myself that is a weird dynamic <laughs> in this interview <laughs> So for my next question. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So yeah, like 2024, how are you as, as we as we wrap up? Or how, how long have we been going? Because also the other thing that happens during a, um, an interview is you completely lose track oh, of Oh, there's time. no sense. This is before. either like five minutes or like two hours. Yeah, exactly. Are we fine? Keep oh, going. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, exactly. We, yeah, we, no, we this, is, this, is, this is going well. Cool. Yeah. And ab about an hour. Ah, great, great. Cool. Yeah, so 2024, like you did another interesting video about who we're going to vote for, people. And it, it also feels that we're in this weird place in South Africa where there are more and more parties. But in many cases, it also feels like fewer and fewer genuine options. So like there's a ballooning of the political party landscape. But there are still many people who feel like no party quite, quite, gets, quite gets it. Yeah, I think the reason why that video has done well is because it expresses the exasperation of a group of South Africans, and it's probably the majority of South Africans who are completely hurtful of the ANC, but completely hurtful of the alternatives. So I always say that the only thing more disappointing than the ANC government is the fact that no political rival has been able to take advantage of such an enormous head start to mount a credible challenge. 
Like, think about how many disasters the ANC has presided over, how much decay, how much corruption, how much awfulness. That is not contestable. It is just the facts have been established, and that's exactly what happened. And not a single other political party has been able to mount a credible challenge. What that speaks to is a failing of our political class and a fundamental lack of ability and lack of talent. Lack of mm. talent. Like, just lack of talent in our politics where, like, even who's the most charismatic talented politician in south africa it's julius malema by yeah. far no matter what you think of him he is a master at the art of being a politician demanding attention in the spotlight whatever he wants sure and the eff is new but it's also been around for a while and it's not eclipsed the democratic alliance it's not come close to 20 percent. and it's just like what is wrong like i don't know mm. but what i think about 2024 and the reason why it's so extraordinary is less so that South Africa is on a cliff edge, which I think a lot of people believe that it is and it might well be in terms of like the decay and disaster and everything. Mm. I think it's because the belief that South Africa is on the edge of a cliff amongst all of South African society means that this election is going to be the most unpredictable to predict. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. as you said, there's so many new political options. For the first time in South Africa's history, there is a proper fleshing out of the entire spectrum where we have hard right liberal conservative parties. We have hard left yeah. socialist parties. We've yeah. got a variety of positions around the middle. Mm. When for a long time it felt like the ANC was, you know, center left and the EFF was center, uh, sorry, uh, center left left. Sure. Um, and the, or maybe more left, but the DA was like center left, center right. And mm. like that was it. But now we have this stratification. We have a lot more identity politics. We have special interest groups, minority parties catering to small groups of people mm. and lots of new parties. So, the, I mean, Action SA had such a phenomenal debut. How are they going to do? Yeah. yeah. Rise and Zanzi has got everybody's attention, but mm. has never been in an election before. Mm. We have mm. no idea what's going to happen. The IFP is surging in mm. KwaZulu Natal mm. and taking away tons of BFA votes there. That's why Malema has been smacking the IFP for the last week as mm. we record. Mm. And so it's just this weird election where I think that the ANC, I mean, the ANC will win. All mm. the data suggests that. But how much will they win by is interesting. But mm. it's after them, which is really interesting. Yeah. Who is going to become the figurehead opposition? I really don't know. Yeah. And I think that that yeah. means that there's a degree of excitement, but also trepidation. Mm. It's just because in uncertainty, you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. Absolutely. Wonderful for content creators, though. So good. Like, can you, <laughs> can you imagine next year? It's just going to be like so manna from about. heaven. I might have to quit five to have enough time. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's just that, that, that week of the election, like all, all the buildup. I mean, we've, we've already been given so many gifts, like the Patriotic Alliance's empty stadium. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just so many different gifts already. The, 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 the liquidation of the ANC. I like, mean, I mean... It, but that moment of building up is going to be like none we've seen before, I think. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be the circus of the results week yeah. of like, and then is it really happening? Is it not? Did they hold on? Did they not? Um, are you going to go to the IEC results center? Uh, I think so. You definitely so should. I've got a few yeah. invites. Um, yeah, you to, must. Make sure, you, make sure you're there. Go have a little booth. Yeah. Talk you, to some people. You need, to be, you need to be there. And then... Just when we think we haven't got enough interesting moments of content to to digest, then there's going to be the formation of all these governments I know. and like the coalitions and, and not just nationally, but the different provinces. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's going to be wild. And what I have been spending a lot of time on in the last month is because I think the one problem that South Africa's media landscape has is that we have tons of opinionistas and not enough data analysts absolutely so if you think about who south africa and their media turns to to analyze and just track all mm. the by-elections which mm. is where we should be inferring trends from yeah there are only two people it's wayne sussman and darby scouts yep. and there's yep. just no one else and and that's a failing of our it's an immaturity that needs to mature about mm. mediated landscape mm. and our democracy because mm. We need to be able to have a John King looking at a board and yeah. saying, you know, in Mangawang, this yeah. really matters. Yeah, you know, exactly. Toyandu, I mean, got a, um, an interview with Wayne Sussman about the data, about mm. the by-elections mm. to figure out what's mm. happening in 2024. He gives all these amazing trends. But the one simple thing that he points out is Toyandu, Toyo which does not get national press mm. at all, mm. contributes only 12,000 votes less than Mangawang to the ANC. Hmm. 
and Mangaung is going to be covered to death. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that we need in our politics is a media fleshing out of mm. proper data analysis Absolutely. of what actually is going on as opposed to I, I live in Santon, not me. I'm saying hypothetical no. I live in Santon. It's out now. Clipped. Not Done. <laughs> I don't live in Santon. <laughs> uh, but uh, I hypothetical opinion Easter for a newspaper live in Santon and I feel unhappy about mm. these things and mm. my friends feel unhappy about these things. Therefore, I'm going to write an article that the DA is going to yeah. win this area. Yeah, absolutely. How, how does it feel to live in Santon? Is it like I, a nice... I don't know. <laughs> I drive through Santon when I want to give my tires a break right. from the potholes right. everywhere yeah. else. Yeah. Fair. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you, you're so right. And, and and on that, like, I would even go further. I think it's not just data analysis. It's just actual analysis itself. Yes. There's a lot of opinion. And of course, the line between opinion and an analysis is, is, is murky, but there isn't a lot of analysis, like, which is just, I'm going to try and explain this, this phenomenon, one, so that you can understand it, but two, to break down what are the interesting things, what's the noise, what's the signal, so look out for this kind of thing. I was once um, told such an interesting comparison. Um, you know, in the traditional understanding of a, a product creation cycle, you've got your raw, raw materials, which is like primary industry. Then you've got second in secondary industry, which is like industrialization. Then you've got tertiary industry or mm. third stage industry. I can't remember what it's called now. Sure. Uh, which is like product services, like niche um, things like that. Mm. And like, the first person interview or the immediate microphone into the mouth of somebody famous or important or influential is the raw materials. Mm. And like what what we need is raw materials, but we also yeah. need the industrialization to go like, what does this mean? How do we yeah. use this? How Absolutely. does this link to this? Absolutely. We've got a lot of uh, raw, raw materials and we've got a lot of tertiary, it's but we don't have the second. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dan Corder, thank you so much for joining us. It was a fascinating conversation. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And, uh, Everyone head over to Dan's YouTube channel, his TikTok account. Make sure you support the important work that he's doing. And uh, yeah, man, all the best. Good luck for the 2024 cycle and uh, look forward to watching a lot of your content. Good luck to you guys too. Thank you so much. Aye.